from God's general revelation in all of creation to God's special revelation that he gives to us in his word, we turn now to God's holy, infallible, and errant word. We are continuing our series through Acts. We are in chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 26 this morning. Before we read God's word, let's turn to the Lord in prayer and ask his Holy Spirit who breathed out this, his word, to help us as we uh, read it and hear it, to be able to understand it and to apply it to our lives. Let's pray together. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Beginning at Acts chapter 11, verse 19, hear the word of the Lord. It is written. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. There are several significant things about this section in Acts 11. It's here in Antioch that major progress in the Gentile outreach occurs. We are told that there were Jewish Christians who had fled the persecution that saw Stephen stoned to death, that they had come to Antioch fleeing that persecution. Now, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. It had a decent-sized Jewish population. It really isn't surprising then that some of these Christians would find their way to this city. Anyhow, Luke tells us that when these Jewish Christians arrived in Antioch, they were proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. Some of them, Luke indicates, were only telling other Jews. But there were some, and Luke identifies these as having come from Cyprus and Cyrene, who were bold to proclaim Jesus Christ to the Gentiles living in Antioch. This is what is meant by they spoke to the Hellenists. These are Greek-speaking Gentiles. 
And the Lord was obviously pleased with their outreach to the Gentiles and blessed their work. Luke tells us, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So Antioch, an enormous Roman city, a cosmopolitan center, a port center, known religiously as the cult center for the Greek goddess Daphne and her consort Apollo, became the place by God's sovereign grace where the mission to the Gentiles exploded. And who was it that started all of this? Some nameless, at least to the historical record, ordinary followers of Christ from Cyprus and Cyrene. Again, as I preached several weeks back, this is what happens when believers are living out the gospel and are bold to proclaim it, even as they go about living a mundane life of faithful discipleship in obscurity. The Lord loves it. He blesses the work of the hands of those who are living in this way, and he uses it to expand his kingdom. Antioch is also the first place where we are told that the followers of Jesus were called Christians, which is probably what this passage is most well known for recording. Now, Christian is an interesting word, actually, if we look at the etymology of the word. It is a combination of a Greek word, Christ, which means anointed one or Messiah, with a Latin suffix meaning belonging to or identified with. So this designation probably didn't come from the Jewish people in Antioch since they did not acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah, nor would it have been something that the followers of Jesus were calling themselves. They had other terms like disciple that they were already using. Therefore, it's more than likely it came from the general Gentile population, probably outside of the Christian community. And many have suggested that the term was coined and used as in sort of a derogatory sense. And we see this in who uses the term later. Later in Acts, we will find this name on the lips of King Agrippa. But it isn't incorrect, is it? Christians are the people who belong to Christ, who identify with Christ, right? So there are all these things happening here that are are of historical significance. The Gentile mission led by obscure Christians in a place where the term Christian is first reportedly used. These are really, really important things in the history of the church. But I want to push into the passage, the the aspect of the passage that I want to push into is the importance of mature believers, and by that I mean those who are mature in faith regardless of age, helping the Christian community to grow and develop through mentorship and discipleship of those who are newer or not as far along in the faith. And we find a great example of this here in Acts 11, and it's worth spending some time on meditating this morning. You see, the apostles in Jerusalem hear about what's going on in Antioch. They hear that the gospel is being proclaimed and that many Gentiles are coming to faith through these bold believers who have no prominence. And the church in Jerusalem wants to check it out for themselves. 
They probably also want to give some credence to what is happening. So they send a delegate to Antioch, someone people will know, someone whose name carries some weight and authority, someone who can provide the church in Jerusalem, uh, can provide the church there Jerusalem's blessing to what's happening. Someone who's well known for his faith and for being an encourager. They send Barnabas, a very wise choice as someone who can not only provide credibility to this Gentile mission and who, being from Cyprus himself, can perhaps more easily make connections there in Antioch, but he was also one who had what it took to help these young believers to mature in their faith. So he came to Antioch and served as a mentor in the faith to them. And I think that there are some very important lessons that we can take away from Barnabas's ministry in Antioch. I want to highlight three this morning. So first, Barnabas comes recognizing and no doubt encouraging the believers in what is going well in their lives. Luke tells us in verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. Now, we could think very little of this statement. Well, of course, we might think he sees all of these new believers and is excited by it. Who wouldn't be excited by it? These are Gentiles who, as Paul describes in Ephesians 2, were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. These are folks who were previously dead in their sins. They were without hope being outside of the family of God. Ephesians 2 provides for us one of those but God moments, though. So addressing Gentiles, Paul writes, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is certainly something to be glad about, something to rejoice over. Why wouldn't Barnabas be amazed at the grace of God he was witnessing in Antioch? But let's pause for a moment and consider what Barnabas actually found when he arrived in Antioch. Indeed, an amazing sight of Gentiles who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, but they were young believers who were not raised as Jews nor even partly Jewish as Samaritans, nor even as God-fearers as Cornelius and his family. These were formerly pagan Gentiles. Antioch was a very pagan place. So these new believers probably knew very little of worshiping the one true God. What they were familiar with was the worship of the goddess Daphne and with the cultic prostitution that was associated with it. Their former world was very, very foreign to Christianity. And perhaps then it's very appropriate that it's here in this city where Gentiles are coming to Christ that they are first called Christians. The Jews who had placed faith in Christ still thought of themselves as Jews. But what were Gentiles who placed faith in Christ to do. They could no longer associate themselves with the pagan religions that they had come from. They really did deserve a new title, as it were. 
But think about what these young believers look like. In all likelihood, they weren't lacking in zeal for the Lord. They couldn't have departed from their pagan ways and be baptized into the Christian faith otherwise. So they would have been excited about their newfound faith, grateful for the grace they had come to experience in Jesus Christ, excited to follow the Lord, but more than likely they had very little knowledge about God's word and the Christian faith. Consequently, very little wisdom in living out their faith. Their faith then was probably very clumsy, very immature since they were only at the beginning of their faith journey. They would have still been coming to understand who Jesus was and is and still learning how to follow him in faith. The reality is that no one comes to faith in Christ filled with perfect knowledge about Christ and how to follow him. Our faith journey is just that, a journey. We progress in faith as we learn Christ, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 4. As we experience his goodness, as we grow in relationship with him and in his likeness, as we seek to keep in step with and be led by the Spirit. But no one is born again a mature Christian. And just think about this for a moment. For any of us who are sitting in this sanctuary who came to faith in Jesus Christ from an unchurched background, we at least had some idea of what the Christian life looked like having grown up in a culture that was very much shaped by Judeo-Christian values and ethics. This might not be the case for the generations to come in this country, but it was for many of us. These new believers in Antioch, though, did not have that privilege. Their cultural context was much different, and Antioch was known to be a culture of pagan immorality, even among the pagans. The Christian faith for them really was brand new and presented a radically different worldview to them. This means that there would have been a very, very steep learning curve for them coming into the faith. I remember when I was in Nepal, which was very much dominated by Hinduism and Buddhism, these religions set the dominant worldview for people in Nepal. Life very much revolves around these religions, especially Hinduism. So when someone comes to faith in Christ, there is or there should be a major shift that occurs in worldview and consequently in living. But it doesn't happen all at once. So one of the things that we experienced there were Christians still immature in the faith who were, as our guide there described them, shrewd. And what he meant specifically by this adjective was that they were regularly that they regularly employ dishonest business practices. Said more bluntly, they lied for gain. They took every opportunity to take advantage of others. Not something that you would expect or hope for from a follower of Christ. But sure enough, when we sought to support one such man's business while we were there, he tried to charge us an exorbitant rate because we were rich Westerners. And our guide told us to call him on it, which we did. 
And he somewhat reluctantly and with a whole lot of grumbling finally lowered the price he had given to us. Now, on the one hand, I sort of felt bad because we did have the money to afford the price he'd originally given us, and we wanted to help out fellow believers there. On the other hand, he had definitely tried to pull a fast one on us and cheat us. He did this, though, because it was an accepted way of life there. And when he became a Christian, it didn't register with him that as people of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, that we are people of truth. Therefore, we should not deal in shady business practices. This is why the Apostle Paul tells the church in Ephesus, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Then he goes on to give them some really practical advice. Things like having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Don't lie to one another. And let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hand so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, why in the world would Paul even need to tell those in the church to put away falsehood and to quit stealing? And the answer is because Christianity was so unfamiliar to what they were used to as pagan Gentiles that nothing, nothing could be taken for granted. So we didn't want to let this man who tried to defraud us simply get away with it and go on living like that. And honestly, it was more than a little frustrating to be treated that way by a fellow believer. It's not something that we were accustomed to having happened to us in America, at least not in such a blatant way. These would have been the sort of issues that Barnabas would have encountered in Antioch. But look at Barnabas, who surely wasn't unaware that there was a lot of room for growth in these young believers, but he doesn't come complaining about their faults and criticizing them. At least there's no indication of this. There's no indication that he came to Antioch frustrated with their immaturity and immediately lecturing them for all they were doing poorly. No, he came and did what he had always done exceedingly well. He focused on God's grace at work in them, and he rejoiced over it. He praised God for his saving grace. He knew that there was a lot of work to be done. That was in part why he was there but he didn't come criticizing and condemning. He came celebrating the work that he saw God had begun in them, and he was determined to help these new believers to grow into full maturity in Christ Jesus. We've said previously in Acts that Barnabas was an encourager. Certainly this is something that someone with the gift of encouragement does particularly well. But this isn't just something encouragers should be doing. This is what any believer, mature in the faith, should be doing to mentor those new to the faith. How quickly would we be overwhelmed and discouraged as an immature believer if those who could see our faults came piling them on us, came offering only criticism? It would be paralyzing. And Barnabas here shows us a far more effective way to help immature believers to grow in their faith. He models a life of being quick to recognize the grace of God in others and to give thanks for it before 
anything else, before recognizing faults and failures, before offering correction or rebuke, and we'll see him do this later in Acts with John Mark, he is gracious towards others. By the way, that doesn't mean in any way that those things in believers that are inconsistent with the Christian life should be ignored and never called out. It just means that we don't start there. Because if we do, we forfeit our opportunity to influence them towards maturity. So, dearly beloved, how quick are we to recognize God's grace in others' lives? To name it, to rejoice over it as a starting place to form relationship with them to help them grow in faith. We should recognize that Barnabas didn't stop there, though. So second, after seeing God's grace at work and rejoicing over it, Barnabas did offer an exhortation. Specifically, he urged these new believers to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Another way to say what the Greek is articulating here is that he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts or with steadfastness of heart to continue with the Lord. What is it? It's a call to perseverance in faith. And it's a very important word to these young believers. This is wise advice from a mature believer. Barnabas knew that the thrill of the newness of their faith would eventually wear off. He knew that these believers, sooner or later, and probably sooner, would face difficulty and disappointment. The pagan world around them would not look lightly on them having placed faith in Jesus Christ. It would likely not treat them kindly for adopting a new worldview and refusing to submit themselves any longer to all of the cultural idols and norms. They would be attacked by the world around them and by the powers of darkness. And what happens when a young believer experiences difficulty? Well, it can be an opportunity to be shaken in the faith. It can be an opportunity to doubt and despair. It can be an opportunity to give in to temptation, to make big mistakes, and to experience significant moral failure. How is all this avoided, though? By having a mature believer there to exhort those who are still immature and inexperienced in their faith to persevere. A mature believer who serves as a mentor and discipler in the faith in this moment is invaluable. Mature believers almost certainly have faced difficulties and disappointments themselves. They have faced a crisis or two. They understand what it takes to weather the storm and not compromise the faith. Mature believers are not surprised, shocked, or shaken when things become hard. If you don't have someone who is mature in the faith and available as a mentor to you, where do you turn in these moments? Who do you go to for prayer, for counsel, for wisdom, for encouragement? Or even major calamities aside, who do you go to when you hit a section of scripture that is really hard? I hope you have a mentor in the faith to turn to. Barnabas then reveals in his exhortation another important aspect of mature believers mentoring those who are still weak and immature in their faith. Finally, one more thing that Barnabas begins to make clear here. It's a significant mark of his mentoring ministry. 
he raised up new leaders who would later be allowed to take the lead as he humbly stepped aside. We see the extent of the work that faced Barnabas and Antioch here in these verses. There were a lot of new believers in Antioch who had come to faith in Jesus Christ and who now needed a lot of instruction. Barnabas quickly found that he needed help. Who did he turn to? His buddy Saul, who he had championed from the beginning and helped to connect in the early church and who at this point has had the opportunity to grow in faith himself. So Luke tells us in verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. This, by the way, is no small feat to get to Saul, who is 100 miles away in Tarsus. 100 miles might not sound like a big deal to us. We can hop in our car, drive 100 miles in about an hour and a half on an interstate. But think of the journey to Shreveport and back without a car. It's 100 miles from here. So this was not a move Barnabas did because it was going to be an easy, he wasn't just like some easy guy out there he could grab. He did it because Saul, he knew Saul. He knew his giftedness to help in this moment and because it was an opportunity for Barnabas to help further grow up Saul in the faith. So Saul comes alongside Barnabas. And here in Antioch, at least according to verse 30 that we will get to next Sunday, they were Barnabas and Saul. This will continue until the beginning of chapter 13. But towards the end of chapter 13, Thirteen, we see something interesting happen, a very subtle change, one that we might not even notice. No longer are we told of Barnabas and Saul. Now we are told of Paul and Barnabas. There's a shift in the order of the names. Paul becomes the prominent one. Barnabas is still there. And sometimes his name is mentioned first, but much less often. Barnabas goes from being the man up front to being the man in the background. And that shift begins as a minister here in Antioch. Barnabas is mentoring Paul to take over this work. And I hope that we are at least just a little bit shocked by this in this culture where everyone is trying to push others out of the way to reach the top. This is part of the upside downness of God's kingdom where the people of God aren't pushing people over and out of the way and trampling on them, but are seeking to lift each other up, to grow them in the faith and in their giftedness. And Barnabas shows us here that this is what mentor ministry does. What a beautiful picture of the gospel that reshapes how we view others, how we interact with others, how we work to build others up and to serve them before ourselves. Let me ask all of you this. What sort of person does it take to train up someone and then allow them to take prominence? It takes a man of great humility, one who seeks the Lord's glory and not his own. And Barnabas clearly understood that it wasn't about him. He was simply a tool in the hand of God. His sole joy and delight was to be used by the Lord to advance God's kingdom and to bring him glory. 
So we aren't surprised that Luke describes Barnabas as a man of great integrity. In verse 24, we are reminded that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. But we don't want to miss the significance of why Luke points to Barnabas' character to his spiritual maturity, to the work of the Holy Spirit in him. We need to draw the connection to places like Titus, where Paul is encouraging mature believers to mentor those who are still young in the faith. And what does Paul focus on there? Is it spiritual giftedness of the mentor to grow a new believer? No. Paul says this, older men are to be sober-minded dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. And then he goes on to talk about the mentoring relationship. It's all about character, isn't it? About spiritual maturity. As one Christian author puts it, there are many things we can do in ministry without godliness and the fullness of the Spirit. We can lead meetings, organize and implement programs, win elections, head committees, but we cannot help people abide in the Lord. To produce godly people, we too must be godly. To produce people who walk close to God, we too must walk close to God. Mentoring other believers in the faith isn't as much about whether you have the right spiritual gifts as much as it is if you have solid Christian character and spiritual maturity. Paul is telling mature believers to mentor others by simply modeling faithful living. And he says this, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that any opponent opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Dearly beloved, for the church to be healthy, she needs people like Barnabas. She needs those who are willing to mentor others in the faith by modeling a life of faithfulness, who are willing to spend time doing life with those who are not as far along in the faith. We need those who are more mature, those who have greater knowledge of God's word and deeper intimacy with Christ, who have more experience and wisdom in living the Christian life to be willing and eager to share it with those who are less mature in the faith. This is the model we are given in God's word. We aren't meant to grow in faith on our own. We see it in Barnabas's ministry. We see it in Paul's ministry, who would then go on to mentor those like Timothy and Titus in the faith. God intends for what we could call spiritual parenting to be growing up believers in the faith in the church. So we see these examples and we have explicit instruction in God's word to mentor others and to encourage mentorship within the church. Now, it doesn't seem to me that this is a common occurrence in the church in America today. Faith is very private. Faith is personal, very individual. Everyone is just minding their own business, hope, hopefully seeking to grow in the faith, but largely just doing it on their own. It doesn't mean that we aren't sitting next to one another in a pew or in a Sunday school class or in a Bible study while we do it. 
but are we really sharing our lives with others for the sake of growing them up in the faith? Is there intentionality in the relationships that we develop in the church community to mentor and to be mentored? If not, I can promise you that we are worse off for the lack of these relationships. And perhaps we feel like it's a bit prideful or intrusive to invite others into our lives and encourage them to imitate us. Well, who am I to say that someone, that I could show someone else a thing or two about faith? Paul wasn't shy about doing this, though. He told the church in Corinth, as well as the church in Philippi, to imitate him. He also unashamedly acknowledged that the believers in Thessalonica had become imitators of him. This is a theme in his writings. Was he being prideful? Of course not. He understood that God gives us to one another for this purpose. And as much as he had learned to imitate Christ from others, others should imitate him. And he had learned to imitate Christ because he had first had others take him under their wings and mentor and disciple him. He had Barnabas, for example. And the other side of the equation is a willingness for those still immature in their faith to seek opportunities to be mentored and discipled in the faith. But if we are young in the faith, maybe we are embarrassed about what we don't know. We don't really want to reveal our weakness or our ignorance, or perhaps we feel like it's being needy to admit that we need others to help us to grow in faith and to ask someone to serve for us in this way. Can I encourage you today, if this is you? Growing in maturity in faith is worth getting over these things. It's worth admitting that you are weak and needy. It's worth facing your embarrassment. The joy and the grace that you will experience from deeper intimacy with Christ and greater faithfulness in your obedience to Christ that comes from learning from a believer who is more mature in the faith is totally worth whatever barriers are keeping you from engaging in a relationship like this. Dearly beloved, we have to get over these barriers. Mature believers, invite young believers into your lives. Share your lives with them. Model faithfulness to them in your everyday living, in your devotional practices, and how you conduct business in your relationship, whether at work or in your home or among friends or in the larger community. Immature believers, find someone who is further along in the faith who can model maturity for you, who can help you along. My prayer is that mentorship, discipleship in the faith would be a mark of our community here at Covenant. That we would look like the church Barnabas and Saul sought to establish in Antioch, and that Paul encourages Titus to establish in Crete. And may God be glorified as we grow up together in Jesus Christ, who is our head. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that in your great love, you would extend your covenant of grace to even us who were once far off. We thank you for drawing us near by the blood of your dear son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the gift of your church 
that we are incorporated into when we are engrafted into Christ by your Spirit. We thank you that you place us around other believers who can help us in our journey of faith, and I pray this day that you would help us to establish those relationships whereby we might spur each other on to love and good deeds. And I pray this for the sake of your glory and the expanse of your kingdom. And I pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? 